This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Incompetence in Gumshoe. Updating Nephilim. Emotionally smart characters. And Lincoln Park time travel. As our beloved and sleekly accessorized listeners well know, our heads are full of ideas for games. Uh, sorry, I can't hear you over all these game ideas. If you are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games bubbling in your cranial region. But unlike excruciatingly humble podcast hosting game designers like ourselves, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue. The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It contains a ton of generic components. Components like meeples, cubes, dice, tokens, and discs. And includes a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing. With topics like... Refining your design. Playtesting. Crowdfunding. And how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. Seriously, I can't even hear you over these game ideas. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But what's this? All the miniatures are facing walls or lying on their stomach, and the dice have all come up ones. Yes, it's a goofed, incompetent segment. Uh, not the segment is not incompetent. The segment will be delivered <laughs> with our standard calm professionalism. But the question is about incompetence, specifically incompetent characters in Gumshoe, that bastion of competence porn. Robin, as the designer of Gumshoe, how do you deal with uh, Abbots and or Costellos? So the, the inspiration for this segment was uh, a joke, a, a, a gag, a bit of uh, a japery that I engaged in uh, uh, you know, 3,000 years ago when the Trump story was that he was proposing the Space Force, I thought, mm-hmm. uh, just jokingly said, well, you could do a, a reskin of Knight's Black Agents where... Uh, that was in, in his first of nine terms, I believe. Yes, exactly. Uh, so I suggested that you could reskin Knight's Black Agents so that instead of uh, fleeing from vampires, that you were uh, running away from aliens. And the difference here is that you would be the hapless grifters and and uh and boobs who uh signed up willingly to be part of uh, Trump's space force uh, but the aliens think that you're a real threat and then not necessarily seriously but in in a, in a quasi joking tone a number of people said well you couldn't do it in gumshoe because gumshoe is all about super competent characters now i don't want to spend this segment actually spending a lot of time Riffing the space force <laughs> yeah, concept because that, that that joke was exactly one tweet effective. Exactly, <laughs> um, but it did raise an interesting question because we tend to think of Gumshoe characters as super competent because, uh, first of all, Knights Black Agents characters in particular are described as such, and certainly characters who are always uh, who are experts in their field and are always able to move through the plot line by getting more information is, as you suggest, a cornerstone of uh, competence porn. Uh, but 
that's the way that we describe things. And even in a uh, storyline where the characters are uh, failing a lot, they are failing forward, one hopes, into the story rather than, you know, just sitting around having nothing happen. So the fact that we describe characters in Gumshoe as very competent is not necessarily intrinsic to the rule so that we can envision characters who are, uh, you know, sort of goofball heroes in a sort of a comic mode. There is a funny gumshoe game, Time Watch, but you're super competent amusing characters in that. <laughs> so, Ken, let's say that we're doing a, a gumshoe game where the characters are uh, not hyper-competent. You can argue that Fear Itself features those characters because that's ordinary people in a horror movie situation. How do we uh, still create the feeling that you're moving through the plot line without uh, alongside it uh, having the char- uh, players have to believe that their characters are omnicompetent or more competent than your your standard antagonist or protagonist? I mean, to begin to begin with, you make a good point about fear itself and the way that fear itself mostly privileges the incompetence of its characters or the presumed regularness of its characters is just lowers the amount of general ability points. And that's, you know, that's the simple uh, big knob that you twist to to raise or lower the competence, the presumed competence of a gumshoe character is the general points, because as you say, the investigative points are the mechanic by which the uh, game moves you from scene to scene. Now, the skin on that mechanic, as you say, can change from, well, from my long years of professoring at the professor of footprint interpretation university, I can interpret that footprint and move us towards the uh, bad thing that made it. Instead, you spend the point of, you know, crime scene investigation, but you could skin it as any number of things, uh, such as you have dumb luck and discover that same footprint in a mossy glen uh, where you've decided to eat your lunch or uh, you are, you know, uh, I mean, the classic way that Abbott and Costello would move through their stories is they would be bullied into it by the NPCs, either romantically, uh, whoever was uh, interested in Abbott and or Costello would say, oh, you have to come out to the, you know, mysterious mansion. That's where I'm going to be tonight under the moon all by myself in a filmy nightgown. And then they'd rush out there and that would move them through the scene. And so you could have uh, I mean, it's not really a investigative moment. It's a, it's a character moment, but you could, in theory, say that characters are, have a relationship or they have a, um, uh, a susceptibility that moves them from scene to scene. And if the player is stumped or has very few things that their character is actually good at, um, they say, well, I'm going to spend a point of susceptibility just because I kind of want to see what will happen, what the GM will throw at me to get me uh, in, into the next scene. Now, those are going to feel more artificially constrained at the table because the freewheeling rompiness of an Abbott Costello uh, movie is from Abbott Costello uh, breaking on each other, not necessarily because the story uh, is A, particularly strong, or B, um, uh, makes a ton of sense uh, looked at objectively. So you might have to just say... You spend your point as normal to get into the next scene, but the, but the GM just has to really be awake to the skinning and can, uh, have 
the uh, either a story justification, the, the the monster or the criminal is toying with the inspector. That happens obviously in the Pink Panther movies. Or you can have. Yeah, I was going to say Clouseau is the prototypical yeah. incompetent uh, investigator who nonetheless solves the crime or moves right. through the story. And so often the way that he does that is he may have a completely wrong theory of the case, but nonetheless he does find the clues that move him on to more information. Mm -hmm. And so that eventually what is really going on becomes apparent. Now, of course, in these movies, the main point of them is not the mystery, that the mystery is rather a structure that gives the character a bunch of stuff to do that pulls him through a bunch of uh, comic set pieces. So another way that you could look at this question is the character is incompetent in other ways other than the crucial moving through the investigation and that they can be a confused about what's really going on or also that you can have sort of uh, set pieces where things go wrong and those would be things involving the general abilities in a Clouseau movie it's you know he uh, pets the wrong dog and gets bitten and that's or you know he falls into the armor and everything uh, collapses or, or what have you uh, and in a idea where the uh, investigators in a gumshoe game are sort of hapless that there are other problems that can come their way. Uh, the antagonist reactions are just described in a way that makes them seem more obviously like they are caused by mistakes made by the uh, characters rather than through just the pure uh, skill and power and nastiness of the villains. Yeah, and um, and and a lot of Clouseau's you know failures are could be described as like critical failures in disguise or in stealth or in whatever, and in some cases in persuader reassurance. But those are usually because he's in some ludicrous disguise, so that still comes down to a general ability. So one way to model incompetent characters is just to present a broader range of failure possibilities that regardless of how many points you spend, if you roll a one, you fail regardless, or you even a one or a two, depending on how ridiculously hapless you want the characters to be. And obviously at some level, you probably can't maintain a campaign with characters who simply can't do anything because it becomes frustrating. I would imagine to play them because even if you're having great fun breaking on each other and enjoying the sort of setup, uh, much like the Pink Panther movies, it gets old about a story and a half into it. And you would have a better luck, I think, building this as a one-shot, again, going maybe back to the Fear Itself model, and making sure that if the campaign's genre is horror, that the horror is sort of Scooby-Doo type horror, where it, the threat is more fictive than actual, because... Again, unless you have really masochistic players, I think the enjoyment of playing incompetent characters who nonetheless get chomped on by werewolves, well, it's, it seems like a joy that it, it's a, it's a bespoke uh, clientele that's going to be into that, right? Right. In general, comic adventure, uh, especially with a comic uh, protagonist, depends on a forgiving universe mm -hmm. that uh, Clouseau is not murdered <laughs> because <laughs> right. things go badly. He just, uh, like Wiley Coyote, uh, gets scuffed up and, and gets back up again. And so there's certainly lots of sort of comic adventures, especially sort of newer ones like Pan Pineapple Express or, you know, 48 Hours, where there is a comic element in uh, a real world of danger, but that's more just basically like your typical 
role playing session when people start to get punchy and crack jokes. Mm-hmm. That if you want to have a a truly comically incompetent character, uh, that the uh, consequences of the incompetence always have to be more story rather than you know death and mutilation and, mm-hmm. and horror. Um, and so I would be inclined to you know take it out of the the horror genre uh, completely and something into more of a uh, you know, sort of buckaroo bonsai style aliens, for example, would be the the bad guys in your sort of space force example, or the sort of um, uh, not to say slapstick, but sort of the high pulp crime of a of a Nancy Drew novel, where the stakes are real, but also they're not real because you're pretty sure no one is just going to straight up murder Nancy Drew. So in a, in a bubble gumshoe scenario, the characters are presumed to be incompetent at tons of things because they're high school students, but they're all able to navigate in ways that are not necessarily the sort of things that uh, a fictional detective or a fictional Jason Bourne type badass would be able to navigate their way through. It's, it's much more the competent at some things and with their friend's help, as opposed to the sort of, you know, you know, high school Jason Bourne uh, story that it is not. Right. Uh, another example of a uh, comic investigator is Frank Drebin, uh, Leslie Nielsen's yes. character from the Naked Gun series. And uh, he, uh, even more so than Clouseau, but Clouseau is also an example of this, is a high-status idiot. Right. That neither of them is actually incompetent at their main point of their job. They eventually do put down the case to the great frustration in Clouseau's case of his uh, superior, played by Herbert Lom. But they're just uh, think that they are even more competent than they really are. And the humor is in the uh, space between how adequate the character is and how phenomenal the character uh, believes he is and, and carries on as being. Another example would be the French, uh, uh, the, the new comic versions of the OSS 117 films. Uh, right, yes. And uh, I think there's probably a bunch of other sort of spy spoofs that work the same way. Mm-hmm. And so what you can do there is you can describe successes in such a way that they are also uh, embarrassing so that you know, you can roll really well and have spent a lot of general points to, to get something and you do, you know, get the bad guy. But, you know, along the way, uh, something slapstick happens. And so that, uh, again, the description is one of comedic incompetence, but the structure is still one of uh, success and forward movement. And a lot of this, I mean, like every comic uh, role play, I mean, comic comedy and horror are very, very common in that everyone has to sort of be into it and be leaning into it for it to really work at the table. If you, the GM, are just trying to nerf the protagonist for no reason, that will cause resentment. And so the protagonist, the player, has to say, yes, I want to play a Schlemiel who is in this um, uh, adventure somehow. And whether that's for terror effect, I'm just a cheerleader running away from, you know, uh, the, the cheerleader slasher in fear itself, or I'm a Clouseau Drebin OSS 117 type bumbling my way through a major investigation. They have to be complicit in it and even maybe be suggesting things where it's like, I'm going to point my gun at the maid because I know that she is the real killer and I'm going to roll and I'm going to spend eight points to hit the maid and you, the GM and also the player know the maid is innocent completely or at worst a henchman. And so you describe the eight points, you know, that the gun 
you know, you fire and the gun, the bullet bounces off the uh, maid's uh, silver salver and then bounces off and smashes a priceless antique and then bounces around and then clips the real bad guy in the back of the head. And when he falls forward, all the documents come out of his shirt. And it's like, oh, how brilliantly you've exposed him, Inspector uh, Ludicrous. Uh, well done, everybody. And you have that sort of as the moment. And the player has to trust that no matter what dumb thing they do, the GM will sort of rescue them while humiliating them maybe in the moment. And the, again, the player has to be into it, which I think is at the very least a one shot situation. I, I can't imagine, uh, again, even the, even the naked gun, even the police squad movies got old, uh, and they were considerably better. Uh, they came from a higher point, I think, than the Pink Panthers. And with the best will in the world, just watching someone stumble bum their way through something, you know, unless it's Abbott and Costello, it's just not that entertaining, right? Yes, and you're getting toward a, a classic truism of role-playing, which is a comedy it is much harder to do, period, and virtually impossible uh, to sustain. Uh, before we uh, jump out of this segment, uh, to address something uh, some of you are getting ready to type, there's the difference between comedy and black comedy, so that fiasco encourages an atmosphere of dark comedy, as seen in almost every Coen Brothers movie, and uh, you know, uh, burn after reading would be uh, a salutary example here where the characters are doomed that it's really a noir, but it's a noir with gallows humor along the way, uh, which is distinct from classic comedy where everything is going to come out all right in the end after considerable chaos because the, you know, the difference between comedy and tragedy is uh, tragedy, uh, you fall on the banana peel and break your neck. Uh, whereas comedy, you fall on the banana peel and you get right back up again. And I guess if we're getting right back up again, we should see what's uh, on the other side of this here commercial. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? It's time once more to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, Patreon backer Frank Rafelson asks... In the mid-90s, my interest in occult weirdness and crazy conspiracy theories was kindled 
by the role-playing game Nephilim. Especially Ken's book Secret Societies and Major Arcanum were chock full of fun crackpot theories and great literature lists. Before I move on to the uh, question uh, that comes after the preamble, Ken, do you want to remind people uh, what Nephilim was? Uh, Nephilim uh, was a French uh, role-playing game. It was done by uh, guys uh, for Multisim. Uh, Frederick Weil and Fabrice Lamaday put it together, and I'm probably butchering at least one of those four names, which will happen. The game basically was about playing the Ascended Masters. You played Mahatmas. You played these discorporate beings that uh, were moving through the eons, gaining occult wisdom and, and power as the eons moved forward. And so when you generated your Nephilim, you had a bunch of past lives that all gave you skills, and you had various magics, but because of uh, the nature of, of the occult quest in the West, you were a weak spirit trying to reach the exalted state of, uh, of union with the Godhead, and in between, you possessed human beings, poor schlubs. Uh, so you were the walk-ins, not the walked-in-upon, to use a modern-day New Age technology, and uh, rapidly, I think a lot of people uh, hit on one or t- of the other of the two big reefs in the game. The first, there was never a really strong idea of what you did, uh, especially because it had the vampire problem writ super large in that all of your characters were crazily different and often in whole different parts of the world. And so it's like, I'm reincarnated Genghis Khan. I'm reincarnated uh, Florence Nightingale. I'm reincarnated Elvis or something. And now we're all in Miami for some reason. And that <laughs> and was sort of our activity. What are we doing? That was, that was a hard sell. And the answer sort of was look for occult stuff and dodge Templars, but it was not super clearly present. Uh, certainly not, Sated in so many words, uh, in the, in the book. The other problem, of course, is that many people, uh, me on occasion in, in among them thought we're playing discorporate ghost monsters that possess people. We're dibooks. This is not fun. This is awful. What about poor, you know, Nancy, whose life was just fine until she got possessed by Genghis Khan and then Templars start shooting at her. This is terrible. I don't, I don't feel happy about this at all. And so the character identification was weak, uh, not only because it was mechanically weak, you were supposed to be, you know, sort of not particularly concerned about your meat body you were concerned about things of the spirit. But since none of us are discorporate spirits, it's sort of hard to say, well, I mean, you can't, cause you can't even play Genghis Khan. You play the spirit that animated Genghis Khan. He was just some Mongol shepherd until a, a ghost monster from the past, uh, uh, possessed him. So yeah, there may have been a sense of Gallic irony, uh, behind yeah, the original. There may have been but... a sense of Gallic irony. And it certainly, um, it, 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 it was, uh, pretty much true to the Western occult tradition, modulo one or two, you know, bibs and bobs for, for role-playing sake, but it did not immediately reach out and grab players, even to the extent, uh, or certainly, especially the extent that vampire did, uh, in which you're also playing monsters who have a hard time getting together. But I think more people have thought it would be fun to be a vampire than have thought it would be fun to be a dibook. And maybe that's the thing. Also, most of the vampire art and everything was, was really great and evocative and drew you into the world. And you had an immediate thing to do, which was, uh, bite people and beat up other vampires. And that sort of gave you a, a core activity to do that again, Nephilim lacked. So, uh, that, uh, description, which has been useful for our listeners, uh, has, I think, widened the remit of, uh, Frank's question. Uh, which is, uh, these days, all of the, 
the fun crackpot theories and uh, conspiracy stuff that animated the original uh, seems uh, kind of dated. Uh, in part, I uh, think, and this is me, not Frank, that uh, that which was a cult had stumbled from the shadows and is wandering <laughs> around out in the open in the daylight with its pants down. But Frank's question to you is, how would you update Nephilim both in terms of setting and system? I mean, I guess part of what the, I mean, the core thing that you would need to do and let us presume, let us skip over. You're still going to be playing insubstantial dib books because that's kind of still the point of the game. But right, I would you can't pro- update Nephilim to the point where it's not Nephilim. Nephilim. But I would probably take a leaf out of uh, the White Wolf game Wraith, speaking of White Wolf, uh, in which you play the Wraith, the ghost, and the character, I forget if it's to your left or your right, but it's another player at the table plays your anima, your dark shadow, who is always trying to get you to do awful, awful things. And be then that works for Wraith because it's a game about ghosts doing awful things and being tormented and suffering and uh again a a specialist taste but uh one that uh under the helm of Rich Dansky it, it did amazingly well and was a terrific uh game that gave everyone a lot of great catharsis at the table I would probably say that the person to your left plays your human and so you're always playing a human and there's another player who can annoyingly possess you and make you do things. And I would probably imply that the consciousness gets split a little more than uh, the current Nephilim game does. And if you can work out a modus vivendi by which you can team up with your occult hitchhiker, then you will at the table be more effective, uh, even though the mechanics would probably still try and pull you a little bit apart, or at least the stories would. And you would be able to you know, advance in the game uh, narratively, which would feel like advancing uh, spiritually to the great blah, blah, blah. And so that I think is the biggest change that I would make is, is systemically I would bring the human being back onto the stage because that's where the drama is, is not I'm ancient Genghis Khan in Miami trying to find the sort of Welleron and beat up Templars. That's all well and good. But the drama I think is I'm ancient Genghis Khan I'm in Miami. I'm trying to find the sort of Welleron. I'm trying to beat up Templars, but I'm in a uh, nice Mrs. Ruiz who runs the laundromat. And so how do I do that as Genghis Khan exactly? And so that, you know, Mrs. Ruiz might say, well, I run a laundromat, but it doesn't mean I don't want an ancient Mongolian tactical genius giving me advice about the, the, the chumps from, uh, from the, the, uh, stand and suds across the street, those jerks with their franchise money. Um, and now yeah. wait, wait till they're sacked completely exactly. sacked by, and their skulls are piled up in a pyramid. And Mrs. Ruiz is like, no, no, that would, that would get the cops mad. And, and, and you would have, you could either play it for sort of fun or you could play it for sort of drama. Like it's, this is what Genghis Khan would say is like, yeah, burn it down. And, Maybe you can't sack it, but burning things down happens all the time in Miami. So stroke of chin, plus you have magic. Now what do you do? And your human can maybe even be explicitly the thing that is tempting you into getting involved in pointless crap instead of searching for magic swords and improving your your spirit. But you would at least have that drama at the table and have that drama in your story. And if you are going to say, nope, I'm going to crush your individuality, human Mrs. Ruiz, and we are going to move around like robots that is a decision you have to take at the table and then play out. And maybe your other fellow players will be like, oh, they're one of the dangerous, pure spirit Nephilim of whom the prophecies warn, and we have to keep an eye on them or whatever. 
And that's the, that, that I think would be the, the, the biggest change and it would make the game at least, uh, differently interesting. And there would always be something to do at the table because you would always have people's petty concerns, uh, with their lives, right? Right. Uh, now Frank hasn't asked me, but the first thing I would do would be to address the sympathy issue by having a worse problem than the Nephilim. Because of course, in the, uh, the lore of, uh, the Theosophists, the Ascended Masters are trying to guide uh, humanity along for good. Now, mm-hmm. of course, there's another crop of uh, less sympathetic occultists who, you know, the Ascended Masters are the absolute tyrants who are going to bring you back into uh, a world of synarchy and, and rule you from atop the, uh, the pyramid. So either there are two groups of Ascended Masters. There's your let's enslave uh, humanity again uh, group, uh, and then you have your loosey goosey sympathetic protagonist uh Nephilim or there's some other you know the prehistoric lizard creatures or you know the uh non-corporeal uh essences of destruction or what what have you and you could do sort of like a what you do in Knights Black Agents and have the game master be able to choose from a bunch of different possible antagonists but if you've got the imminent destruction of the world or the uh, conversion of uh, civilization as we know it into a, a, a relentless prison and suffering and torment, then that gives you a reason to uh, all band together and do stuff. And it gives you a temptation of, well, if I take over Mrs. Ruiz a, just a little bit more, that will enable me to, you know, uh, get this sword that prevents uh, uh, slavery from being instituted uh, across the surface of Florida or, you know, whatever totalitarian hellscape you're, you're imagining. And so that uh, then becomes a sympathetic thing that you're, uh, that you're doing to try and stop something deeply unsympathetic and gives you uh, your core activity and something that establishes taking control of people and puppeting them as not a good thing of a, a temptation. Uh, it's a problem, but uh, it, but it's needs must when the devil drives. Exactly. Yeah, in the setting, the sort of version of that was that the Templars uh, were setting up their global empire again. But since the Templars' main goal seemed to be grab Nephilim as opposed to convert the world into a, a hierarchy of darkness, it 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 was it see it played out relatively petty on the page. And you can certainly amp up the Templar conspiracy such that they are you know attempting to. Uh, you know, under their guise as the Davos elite and a bunch of other, you know, whoever the bad guys are that you want to pick on, um, uh, trying to rule the world. And you could even say there's the sort of old school classy Templars and the new school, you know, uh, what's it to you rootin' tootin' Templars who are tired of all the fancy pants talk and just want to, you know, uh, blow stuff up good. And then you have a sort of a, a, a political uh, question in terms of, which faction is actually the dangerous one to us? The incompetent boob Templars who nonetheless are out there causing all the problems in the world or those uh, competent, fancy, but still, you know, cruel and elitist Templars who still want to just turn everything into a sheepfold and, and not, um, uh, and not worry about it. So you can, you can play around with the bad guys. And I think you're right putting something into the setting that pr- provides a ticking time bomb that will not just harm the Nephilim because who really cares about that, but will harm Mrs. Ruiz and everyone she knows and all of Miami and indeed all of Florida. And so you want to, uh, be, uh, piloting Mrs. Ruiz around, uh, for her own, uh, for her own good. And you can then 
play out inter- internally that agree to what makes that makes you different than from the mean old Templars who want to organize humanity for their own good. And, uh, that's sort of the, the, the internal tension or the philosophical tension that would remain in the game, uh, that way. Or as you suggest, um, the, the game also did indeed have dinosaur spirits, uh, from the past. And, uh, it had, uh, a really mean Nephilim who were from other, uh, arcana who were like, you know, forget all this being nice to the humans. You just sort of box them up and, um, uh, frog march them through, uh, the, through, uh, spiritual evolution. And, um, uh, the, the whole point is to get the sort of weller in and don't even concern yourself with the stupid Templars. They're epiphenomenal. And once we get ultimate wisdom, we can destroy them. And so you could have the, the faction in your own group that is ultra, you know, pragmatic and ultra unconcerned with material matters saying that the Gnostic wisdom is to, you know, move up to the gods and not concern yourself with the clay people, uh, who we happen to be, you know, standing among at the moment. Uh, so that leads us with the question of, how to make the world of uh, obscure conspiracies uh, seem current in a world where uh, conspiracy theory is uh, just a fake post away and is increasingly part of um, uh, leeching into mainstream discourse. So how and, do you... And in which I think another thing is that the sort of the 19th century New Age that was celebrated by Nephilim is even less fashionable now than it was in the 1990s. Uh, the, 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 the conspiracy theory is, it, it's more demonic, certainly. It's more about, uh, chemtrails poisoning us, and it's about, you know, imaginary pizza, uh, restaurant, uh, child slavery cults, and it's about all kinds of other sort of, um, uh, tabloid conspiracy, not fancy pants Rosicrucianism. And the problem with playing into that sort of demotic conspiracy narrative is, well, it's, it's ugly. It's, it's not cool. It, it wasn't written by snappy people like A.E. Wade. It was written by mouth breathers like Alex Jones. And so you have to sort of figure out the fun part of that. And that, first of all, there, there may not be any, you know, pony in that pile. Uh, but second of all, uh, finding the fun in this sort of, new, shouty, brutalist conspiracy, conspiracy brute, I guess, is is a trickier matter because it's just aesthetically less appealing than the endlessly ornately engraved Golden Dawn-style finials that uh, Madame Blavatsky and her ilk um, uh, so painstakingly vomited forth in the 1880s. Yeah, you'd have to somehow make that phenomenon part of the thing that the big antagonists are doing and that you are... Uh, and there's, you know, not necessarily a lot of pleasure in, uh, punching deluded, uh, people or, you know, even, you know, your low rent YouTube, uh, snake oil salesman, but the manipulative forces behind all that that are, uh, using all of that to turn people away from democracy, well, they're a pretty good villain to punch. Mm-hmm. But again, the scenery in which you're punching them still matters. And that's the real problem, uh, with the datedness that, that Frank, uh, refers to is that, you know, in the nineties, that was, that, that was still current. You could still, you know, do you were, you're still one, you know, um, uh, Alta Vista search away from people who straight up believed in walk-ins and things like that. There, they may still be out there, but their place in the ecosystem of nonsense has been subverted and subsumed. Um, it's kind of akin to what happened to UFOs, uh, once the sort of cruel abduction narrative took over and blew out the, uh, friendly contact narrative and, you know, close encounters is, 
in a way, sort of a last gasp before the X-Files came and said, nope, aliens are bad. Dealing with aliens is bad. Everything about aliens is bad. Don't touch the aliens. They're awful and they're up to no good. Then that was sort of the, 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 you know, driving the stake into the notion of playing with happy, good aliens. You have the same problem now with playing with conspiracy. There's less happy, good just in the mix. And uh, to bring it back is either a deliberately antiquarian aesthetic objective or you have to really work to recuperate stuff into the current modern uh, crummy version of the spectacle. So uh, would the answer then to be to make it a period piece, have it, uh, you know, during the mid-70s and the initial flowering of the new age and that uh, essentially what your future you're trying to forestall is ours? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's one strong possibility, especially because Nephilim had a brief specter of the notion that you could play in other time frames and make the uh, weakness, one of the weaknesses of the setting at strength. I think that the notion of playing in the 70s and sort of flitting uh, Highlander style, flashback style back to uh, previous pasts or forward to the future because you're discorporate entities, you're maybe uh, separated from time. And so you have you know, sort of obscure figures then who are rising and the, uh, the dramatic irony comes from characters now recognizing them and saying, Oh no, that's Alexander Dugan. He's going to be bad or, or whatever. And so you have that sort of, um, uh, you, you can, you can see that rise of, uh, the, the, the militia mythology and other things in the seventies and eighties and, and play with it. Another possibility is that you make the, 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 the chrome and the filigree, really part of the Nephilim aesthetic and you turn it into more of a fairy story because all urban fantasy is, should be it very seldom is it's about the contrast between the world of fantasy and our modern world. And the notion that there is a, something different and unusual about having a vampire in Chicago or a fairy in Minneapolis. And of course, all of them are like, ah, Minneapolis is basically a fairy town anyway. You know, it, it's just one hiccup away from being Titania's court. Let's all play folk music in the park. Um, and so you lose that setting contrast, but I think you could maybe get some of it in this where you're there to also bring, uh, the beauty of crazy old theosophical conspiracies into this ugly national inquirer world. And that that's sort of your goal and, and the ability to sort of replace your occult machinations do change the world around you. And so you, the characters can sort of improve things, uh, spiritually is a possibility, maybe, a la underground. Uh, well, uh, on the idea that the uh, Nephilim are uh, changing the world for the better in this hypothetical new edition, it's time for us to uh, see uh, what world lurks on the other side of this exciting commercial message. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and game
gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Demonstrate keen emotional intelligence by joining such Patreon backers as... Andrew Dacey! Andrew Jones! Jacob True! Mark Galliotti! And Stephen Brandon! The chutter of IBM Selectric Keys, the gurgle of mid-price bourbon into the jelly jar, welcome us once more to the overstuffed cubbyhole or the dirty desk of a lone figure who struggles to learn how to write good. And here we are to help that figure. In this particular case, we're helping that figure avoid the idiot plot. And Robin, do you want to start by telling our listeners what an idiot plot is? I, I suppose, as opposed to saying, turn on your television. There it is. <laughs> even uh, the idiot plot is a, uh, a writing term that I think even many civilians listening to this show know by now, which is... <laughs> I should hope so. ...is that uh, a storyline that is only forwarded by the characters making overtly stupid decisions. So, for an example of a procedural storyline, one about uh, confronting mostly external obstacles that is only forwarded by stupidity, look at Prometheus, the uh, misconceived... Uh, uh, Ridley Scott re-assumption uh, of the uh, Alien franchise in which basically everything happens because the characters are being foolish. And the reason that that is a problem is that we, A, can see the hand of the writer coming down in order to make things convenient uh, to allow the plot to continue. We recognize that it is uh, unrealistic, even within whatever uh, confines of uh, genre story it may be, and we then uh, lose sympathy both for the character who's doing the dumb thing because they then deserve the disaster. They sort of deserve to be contaminated by aliens if they take their helmet off. Exactly. Um, and also we uh, lose emotional engagement with the storyline because we feel that we've been cheated by the storytellers. So that's the classic version of idiot plotting. And as a sidebar, that's why the slasher movie does work is because the characters are assumed to be idiots. They're teenagers. So, of course, they're going to behave like idiots. That, you know, that's baked into the cake. And then you can, in fact, have idiot plotting in a slasher movie. Plenty of people do. But it's easier to say, oh, she's running upstairs because she's panicked, as opposed to she's running upstairs because the screenwriter doesn't have a good idea for why she doesn't just run out into the street and call the cops. Right. And and even now, you have to do a really good job of, uh, in horror, uh, there's a lot of, there's a trope where, well, the... the unpleasant idiot gets eaten by the monster and well that's okay for the first couple to demonstrate what the monster is for but really that's not scary that's creating a weird dynamic where you're beginning to sympathize with the idiot killer uh, mm -hmm. which i think is an entirely different segment and occurs in a, a horror hut. <laughs> it's also um, a really good rolling stone song yes um <laughs> but what i would like to uh focus on is the idea that in dramatic scenes uh 
having the characters be foolish is also uh, not necessarily the strongest writing choice. Um, and I was thinking of this not by seeing an example of dramatic idiot plotting, but by seeing an example of really smart emotional uh, dramatic writing in the second season of the Netflix series Love, uh, which is about the difficult uh, boundary setting in a budding relationship between a uh, sort of a, a uber nerdy uh, would-be uh, screenwriter who teaches uh, tutors kids on movie sets and a uh, a woman who's a, a radio producer who has, you know, some big uh, skeletons in her closet. She's uh, dealing with uh, alcoholism and a range of other uh, addictions. And so the the uh, it's a Judd Apatow produced uh, show in that sort of Judd Apatow realistic comedy vein. So that there's real truth to the characters, and it's not about uh, getting the joke out. And it's a uh, the whole sort of thesis of the show basically is that you can intellectually know what you need to do, but that's not necessarily a lot of help. That uh, right. You know, that doesn't solve any problems and that's, that is real life for you. And so, for yeah. example, uh, in one of the scenes, they, she sort of drags him along to a work party and he winds up being uh, buttonholed by her, uh, horrible, uh, coworker who she, uh, slept with once and is, and he's sort of, uh, uh, sort of quasi abusively still interested in her. And so the coworker decides to sabotage Gus's, uh, relationship. Now, the way, the sort of obvious way to write that scene is that Gus is completely oblivious to the, uh, agenda of this other character, uh, and then, you know, then goes and does the obvious thing and completely falls for it because it temptingly seems initially that, oh, well, that would have the highest stakes. But in fact, it's written much more intelligently than that. And Gus is written more intelligently in that he catches on pretty quickly to the fact that this guy is a scumbag and is trying to mess with him and begins to push back. And so that makes you, again, you don't lose sympathy for Gus because uh, you, through the use of dramatic irony, already know uh, what the coworker character is up to right from the jump. So you do not want to be too far ahead of the sympathetic character. But also, again, it underlines the thesis of the show, which is, you know, things still go wrong after being told that. Because the um, swirling world of emotion under our intellectual understanding of what's going on when we interact with people is still waiting to sabotage their relationship and, and cock them on the head. So the big bit of writing advice that I'm trying to convey at this point is, especially in terms of your sympathetic viewpoint characters, make them very perceptive about what's going on and see where that takes you. Because if a... Dramatic scene depends on a character being easily fooled or uh, delusional or just not so quick on the uptake or uh, naive or any of those things that it erodes uh, sympathy for them and also is not the uh, probably realistic thing because most of us actually are pretty good at sensing when somebody is trying to uh, deceive us or mess with us or, or otherwise uh, lead us down a uh, dark or troubling path. And, and pragmatically, making your character emotionally intelligent opens up story in a way. If your character is just a, a, a doofus, then they can only react in a very few ways to a lot of different stimuli because they've only got a couple of presets and they're not able to sort of 
read the the room and figure out what's going on. So they're going to default to, you know, hail fellow well met or, or boorish idiocy or whatever their basic character type is. But a character who's got a strong ability to read the room and respond to individual people on an individual basis becomes a more interesting character to write. Because you can do different things with them. They don't always have to be uh, uh, insulting someone or trying to make them friends. They have right. a lot of different possible reactions. And Some people do the obvious thing. Yeah. Uh, you do not want your scenes to do the obvious thing, so try not to have them be about dumb people. And I guess uh, this is a, a place where if I were in an interlocutory Socratic mood, I would come in with a question. But I'll just state it right out. Um, stubbornness is not the same thing as idiocy. Because... There are plenty of cases, and we can all think of them in our own lives, where you read the room completely right, you knew what the guy was up to, and you still were like, screw it, I don't want to give him the satisfaction, I want to be a child about this, because that's what I'm feeling right now, and I either believe that the consequences will be containable, and sometimes they are, or I believe that it's going to feel so good in the moment a la, you know, taking a taking a hit of cocaine or eating that whole uh, sleeve of Pringles that I don't care. And I'm just going to do it because I've got an addiction of my own, just like the uh, the the uh, putative uh, foil character does. And my addiction is to being the smartest guy in the room or telling off bullies or whatever my addiction is. And even if it's a salutary addiction, uh, unlike cocaine and Pringles, kids, don't try that at home. Um, I mean, as a combo, it's great. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Yes. Just snort the, snort the Pringles and eat the cocaine. Eat the cocaine. That's the, that's the off-brand way to do it. Um, where the hell was I? But the, the larger point is that, uh, feeding addictions is something that smart, uh, characters do, even emotionally smart characters, because it's an addiction. Guess what? It's a thing that you do to get a pleasure response. And one of the things we use smartness for is to get more pleasure. Am I wrong? I don't think I'm wrong. Right. Because, uh, it is very realistic. To realize that when you are challenged or under stress or you're not getting what you want, that all of the advice that your brain starts to give you is not coming from the smart part of your brain. It's coming right. from the instinctive part of your brain. And anyone who's ever felt the temptation to get into a fight on the Internet uh, <laughs> when they know they shouldn't has had their brain tell them the total wrong thing to do. Sometimes you got to wait a couple days to... Uh, <laughs> For, for that voice to, to go down, which, you know, who knows what that is, uh, uh, or entire or presidential or, terms. Exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, one thing you can do is you can, if the character is a scene where the character does, uh, make a turn and, or screw things up or in other, some other way go in the direction that the audience doesn't want them to go and you still want to retain sympathy for them, show that awareness of, Oh no, I'm falling to the, tr I shouldn't do this. And then, uh, oh, and then they do, right? And that's or, much more. Uh, another way is to, is to show the, 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 the real joy that you get from doing something maybe un, un, unwise, but show the reason that they did it. Don't just do yeah. it because you thought of a really great line of dialogue. Convey the emotional satisfaction of getting to deliver that to the bully. Even though, yeah, someone's probably going to get beat up and it's probably not going to be me. It's going to be someone I care about. Right. And, and the way to write that is so that the audience is rooting for you to punch the bully, mm -hmm. right? Set up the scene so that, uh, the view, the, the viewer goes, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's. And then afterwards, if the, Oh no, here's the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. Then they're not ahead of the character. Then that uh, irony isn't there. And then, um, even more strongly, you feel a sense of implication because you were rooting 
for the character to do the thing that turned out not to be smart. So if which you, is, which uh, is something by the way that James Elroy is a master at in his crime novels, you always want the character to do the brutal adrenaline, uh, lizard brain thing because Elroy is so great at writing how great it feels to do yeah. that. And it's, it's and then, terrible people up against even worse people. You, you literally, you know, you, you it, it becomes a situation where your smart brain is saying, Oh, I don't think that's a good idea. And your, and your own idiot brain is like, shut up. It's going to be so cool when he does it. And then sure enough, it is super cool when he does it because Elroy doesn't withhold then. He doesn't give you the ashes in your mouth. He then says, Hey, guess what? You hit a guy. You're going to get hit. That's how hitting works. And sure enough, consequences rebound. And although I don't know that you would necessarily go to Elroy for fully psychologically real characters in all situations. I think that certainly feels good impulse is something that Elroy does really, really well. And that maybe people don't pick out because the things that his character feels good about doing are generally pretty grotty. So for example, a dramatic character who knows the mistakes he's making, but can't help making them uh, is Hamlet, right? He yeah, would right. get soliloquies where he uh, excoriates himself for his, um, inability to act and he can sort of in one sense see clearly what he needs to do but in the other sense sees the problems with that and so if you're setting up a scene where uh, as in our real life when we're in crisis you know if there was an obvious smart thing to do and you could just do it that wouldn't be a crisis <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah. as a dramatic writer you're not writing those scenes where everything works yeah, out Hamlet writing- doesn't have a soliloquy should I murder my childhood friends Rosencrantz and Guildenstern he says well gotta do it Move it on. Uh, right. And, and that's not a, a big focus of the play. And he goes right. ahead and does it. And we feel bad about that when he does it in a way. And also there's a, you know, real ambiguity in there. But the overall point being, uh, you know, Hamlet almost his, his whole problem is that he's too smart for his own good and that he mm-hmm. seems to be, uh, you know, outthinking himself at times, or at least he's accusing himself of outthinking himself, which is part of why that character is still so compelling. Uh, centuries and centuries later. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not to say that every character has to be an intellectual or that every character has to be analytical, but if your characters have good emotional instincts and can kind of see the traps that are laid out for them, then the audience can see the traps and worry about them falling into the trap and understand why they did it. Because, And, and I guess really what this is, uh, it's a different way of saying make sure your characters are strongly motivated so that what they do makes sense. Whether you're uh, deciding whether to take off your helmet on an alien planet or whether you're talking to the creepy guy at the party uh, who has a uh, past sexual history with your uh, your girlfriend. And on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, head on in to another segment. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set 
has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the Game Moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons alert us to the fact that we're standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the kick advance the Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. This time around, Patreon backer Adam Grotjohn asks the following. Uh, he's found a an article uh, in the Smithsonian Magazine by a journalist named Jennifer Billick. And to uh, Adam, I think, uh, and perhaps to our listeners, sounds like maybe uh, Ken, in his uh, native stomping grounds of Chicago, uh, possibly left a few perhaps corpsey, uh, perhaps crispy corpsey uh, clues uh, behind uh, to some sort of uh, chronal manipulation. So presumably there's some sort of dread future, Ken, that uh, you prevented, and we can see the traces in that. And this comes from the Great Chicago Fire. Uh, when I was researching this, I had to remind myself that there's only one Great Chicago Fire in our timeline, because of course I've been working on the Yellow King, where there are two. There's another one uh, before 1920, but in in our world, uh, the Great Chicago Fire w- happened in 1871, and uh, Lincoln Park. Uh, well, why don't you just before I go on? Why don't you describe Lincoln Park to those of us who are not uh, Chicago residents? Uh, Lincoln Park is a park on the north side of Chicago, and it is also the name of a kind of a ritzy, tony neighborhood. It's not the Gold Coast. Uh, but it is gold adjacent. Uh, lots of professionals. There's a tiny little zoo there. Uh, there's, um, uh, museums and nature centers and it's, it's a lovely park, uh, surrounded by people who are very sure that they deserve a lovely park. And it, uh, previously, as we have perhaps intimated, was Chicago City Cemetery. And, uh, it was commissioned as Lincoln Park in 1866, I want to say, and, uh, had, and they had previously in, in, I think 1862 said, we got to move these bodies out of the cemetery because it's just unsanitary to have them this close to the city. And they began moving them, uh, down to the South side. Right. And that's a, a story of almost every great city is as it expands, right? There's a, a boneyard out on the outskirts. And then, and then as it gets bigger and bigger, it's like, oh, oh well, what, this is prime real estate. <laughs> These mm-hmm. corpses are occupying. Uh, let, let's get them out of here. And of course, the- and, and also it was, it was super unsanitary to have corpses yeah. that close to where the city is, certainly in an era before modern day, uh, water filtration. And, and so they, they moved the bodies, uh, or began to sort of start moving the bodies to, uh, the south side. And they were interrupted, however, by a little something that I like to call the American Civil War. And the place that they were putting the bodies was a uh, area that uh, was it began as a training ground for the Union Army and then became a prison camp for Confederate prisoners. And sure enough, they began to uh, run out of places to put bodies, so they would start dumping people into the empty graves that they'd been excavating 
to move the bodies to the south side. So there was new bodies being dumped into Lincoln Park, and then the old bodies kept uh, showing up at the uh, Confederate prisoner of war camp, including some number of the Confederate prisoners of war who were dying from just, you know, the the uh, stresses and strains of being POW plus being in a thin shack in a Chicago winter uh, with inadequate heat, which was absolutely the case. And every now and again from scurvy just to shake things up and at least one smallpox epidemic. So Camp Douglas, while no Andersonville, was also no picnic and uh, left a bunch of dead Confederates behind. And so with all these uh, corpses piling up, the city just sort of dinked around and didn't move the bodies uh, lickety split like they promised that they would. And then the theory, and in fact, the archaeological fact is that, uh, in 1869, um, the Lincoln Park Commission took control of Lincoln Park and, uh, they were just promising to move the bodies just any old day. And then the Chicago fire came through and burned up all the gravestones and burned up all the records of who was buried where. And after the fire, the Lincoln Park Commission said, hey, guess we moved all the bodies. Good for us. Right. And in fact, during the fire, uh, some people leaped into the open graves in hopes of being sheltered from the fire. Uh, and uh, it's unclear from this account whether that worked or whether they then uh, joined the other occupants of the grave as a result. Yeah. I mean, I suppose some of them, it worked and some of them, it didn't so much work. Uh, the bodies were still being moved as late as 1887, but the city decided that they were done moving bodies in 1874. They condemned the old cemetery completely. They stopped waiting for people to come and carry their relatives away. And they just, you know, rolled sod over it and called it good. And now the, uh, a artist, believe it or not, did a bunch of research and has decided based on her research, which is the most, uh, uh, Pamela Banos is the name of the artist, uh, based on her research, which is the most comprehensive research done, that there are probably something on the order of 12,000 bodies left unaccounted for underneath Lincoln Park even today. And um, uh, certainly the number of dead people in Camp Douglas, which was the prison camp, is also a matter of lively controversy. The official records say it was, a, I, th I think, something like uh, 3,000 and change. And the best guess of uh, historians is probably between five and 6,000 people died in Camp Douglas. And, of course, you can get uh, uh, Confederate enthusiasts who say, no, 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 it was closer to 12,000 people that died at Camp Douglas because they have to get the numbers up to match Andersonville. Uh, so, so far, that's that's the story... Without right. you or your time machine in it. Right. And I want to, and, and I want to emphasize at this juncture that there's no such thing as ghouls. They don't right. exist. Yes. Even in the rapidly expanding time incorporated universe. Time incorporated universe. Um, this would make a lovely scenario, uh, source for a Chicago necromancy adventure or a ghoul adventure, but there's no ghouls and barely any necromancy. That's right. what I can tell. Okay. That important caveat made. All right. Um, that said, the other thing that Camp Douglas was famous slash infamous for, in addition to holding, I, I found out in my, uh, in my explorations and whether those were internet based or croonly based, you will have to guess. Uh, it held Henry Morton Stanley for a period of time. He was a, uh, immigrant to America, moved to uh, Louisiana, volunteered for, I think it was the Arkansas regiment, fought in the Civil War, was captured in battle, 
and sent to Camp Douglas, where he immediately swore, not immediately, it took him like months, uh, but immediately swore an oath to fight for the Union and was enlisted in the unionized ar- Union Army as what they called a galvanized Yankee. And it turns out about 5,000 Confederate soldiers said, screw this for a game of, uh, of, of soldiers. I want the winning side and then switched to the union. So, uh, good for the galvanized Yankees. Good question mark for Henry Morton Stanley, but he was one of the famous inmates of camp Douglas. Now in 1864, uh, you may remember, uh, it was an election year and president Lincoln was not necessarily a lock to be, uh, reelected. And there was probably you get, historians who make noises, but I can tell you that there was actually a conspiracy by the uh, local Chicago chapter of the Knights of the Golden Circle, which called itself the Sons of Liberty, to mass and break the uh, Confederate prisoners of war out of Camp Douglas under cover of the Democratic National Convention, which was happening in Chicago in 1864. And with that huge number of democratic activists and anti-war people and Confederate sympathizers that would be in the city. Anyway, they would be able to smuggle in uh, trained men who would liberate the 5,000 prisoners at um, uh, Camp Douglas and run rampant through the North and embarrass Abraham Lincoln so that he would lose the election. And uh, in fact, if they had been able to do that, uh, that would have worked. But someone with a time machine prevented it and prevented it so well that even now historians doubt that it ever happened. Uh, there was, however, the commandant of the, of Camp Douglas at the time, a fellow named, uh, General Sweet or Colonel Sweet, I believe at the time, arrested a bunch of, uh, people in Chicago, those, the, the putative sons of liberty, 106 people, according to him, including a judge named Buckner Stiff Morris, who was also, <laughs> as it happens, the former mayor of Chicago. And Buckner Stith Morris was sort of the biggest get of the, of the Camp Douglas conspiracy trials. And in another world, even though the Chicago conspiracy, the Camp Douglas conspiracy failed, its failure also became big news as rather than release a bunch of people and, and bungle the investigation by and large, although he did prevent the, uh, the conspiracy from working, um, sweet, uh, imprisoned Judge Morris and a lot of other people in Camp Douglas, where, because it was November in Chicago by this time, many of them died and became martyrs of the Confederacy. And, um, uh, uh, because Sweet was a former, uh, rather Morris was a former mayor. This, uh, galvanized, uh, to borrow the term, the opposition to, uh, Joseph Medill, who was the hand-picked candidate of Chicago's business community after the fire to become mayor. And, uh, they ran, uh, Morris's political successor. In our timeline, it was a guy named Charles Holden, but in a different timeline, it was a man named Stevenson, who was a, a fellow Confederate who had uh, survived the war. Uh, they ran him, and they won. And that provided a galvanizing, uh, uh, again, a, uh, a stimulus to the, at that time, uh, on its last legs in the South, Ku Klux Klan and expanded Ku Klux Klan activity in the 1870s into the anti-Republican urban north, into um, Irish uh, neighborhoods and German neighborhoods and other neighborhoods that 
um, uh, didn't hold with uh, all these new black citizens getting to have jobs and uh, compete for wages uh, just like they didn't. And uh, it caused a great deal of ruckus and problem and uh, had to be put down with martial law. And President Grant had to serve a third term. And it was um, uh, not a good look for anybody. So right. and didn't it also lead to a famous Chicago thin crust pizza? It did. In fact, it um, because of the anti Italian and anti Catholic activism in Chicago, uh, none of our, none of the Sicilians moved there after 1871. They all moved to Baltimore and uh, made a thick crust pizza, but it was uh, covered with uh, crab. Uh, which was good, but was not proper Chicago style pizza. So Chicago pizza was St. Louis pizza. It was the worst pizza. Um, it was, it was a, 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 a cracker square with, with goo on it. It, it, it doesn't even bear thinking about the, yes. the pizza of that This future. is definitely the, uh, the timeline where the crackers were in charge. As it were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little time joke there for you. <laughs> little, little time joke. So, uh, and how did the, uh, did the fire, uh, just sort of come along and obscure the traces of this or the fire was the fire. I did not start the Chicago fire and I wish people would stop saying that I was only in Mrs. O'Leary's barn to get some milk for a different thing. Yeah. I did not start the Chicago fire. This is a canard. It's a Val canard. I was investigated. I was cleared. Right. No the evidence. Billy Joel wrote a song about it. Then you had to go back in time to stop right. from doing that. Any, in, any evidence that may have existed of me starting the fire burned up in the fire. I, I cannot <laughs> state that well, too clearly. That, that's an, an important circular uh, uh, dynamic, just like the dynamic of uh, emptying your cemetery of corpses and then filling them up with other more corpses. Right. And the uh, uh, what you have guessed, of course, is that the veil out of the second veil out required a lot of corpses and... It required a lot of corpses that no one knew who they were because the Judge Buckner Stith Morris that uh, did not die in Camp Douglas and continued to fulminate uselessly until his perfectly normal regular people death in 1879 may have also had a different Judge Morris who was in a grave, an unmarked grave in Chicago City Cemetery or in Camp Douglas. And we don't know where he was because it uh, all burned up in the fire. And I resent this line of questioning. <laughs> well, uh, I guess in that case, before we uh, probe any further into these uh, absolutely rock solid, credible denials, mm-hmm. I think it's time for us to uh, exit uh, this episode with the clacking of uh, time gears. And uh, But there's one thing we know about time, and that's that There'll be another episode a mere week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Aspagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Save the show from mysterious fires by joining such Patreon backers as... Chris Lydon. Andrew Collins. Darren Dumais. Ethan James. And Isaac Priestley. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Walrus Revenge. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>